Welcome back to Not Like a Regular Mom. Today we are talking about something that keeps a lot of parents on edge, food allergies. Chances are you know a child who has at least one food allergy, if not your own kid. I think that most parents start to feel anxious about this topic when they begin to introduce solids to their babies, but it seems like allergies can even pop up randomly throughout life and it's hard to let your guard down. So I guess I felt more anxious about it, oddly enough, my second time around. I have an older son and I just had a baby. My, my older son is almost five and I just had a baby nine months ago. And when we introduced solids to him and even before then, I, I felt so much anxiety about my older son, I don't know, getting peanut butter from his hands on the baby and that was going to do something. Um, you know, kids can't be as careful as, as adults could. So I don't even know if those fears were unfounded or if that was something smart that we did. So regardless, <laughs> here to answer all of my pressing questions about this topic is an expert in this field, professor of clinical pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology and director of the Food Allergy Treatment Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital, Dr. David Stukas. Hi, Dr. Stukas. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the kind invitation. And I'm excited to chat about something that's very near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn all about this topic from you and clear up just so much confusion that I think parents face. So tell us about what you do and what made you dedicate your career and your life to pediatrics and food allergies. Well, you know, I, I love everything that I do, and I honestly feel that I have the best job in the world. No offense to all of you out there that have wonderful <laughs> professions, but you know, it's it's amazing to work with families from different backgrounds and really help them best understand uh, how to navigate food allergies. As a pediatric allergist and immunologist, you know, I received specialized training after my pediatric residency to help uh, families with allergic conditions. You know, these are some of the most common health conditions affecting children, such as environmental allergies, eczema, food allergies, asthma, drug allergy, venom allergy, so on and so forth. And then in the last few years, I became even more highly specialized. So now all I do is focus on pediatric food allergy. And we opened our brand new food allergy center about 10 months ago. Uh, and this is this is what I do. I live and breathe this. Um, you know, in order to come see me as a new patient, you have to have a chief complaint of food allergy. Wow. I no longer uh, see kids that have primary concerns for environmental allergies or asthma. And it's just, it's very fulfilling for me to help families uh, navigate this, this somewhat confusing path. Wow. Yeah, and I can imagine I mean, we're going to get into it, that it seems like food allergies are just, it's so prevalent now. So that's crazy that there's a whole center open and that there, you have so many patients that they actually have to have a food allergy. Um, so let's get into it. What are the top allergens and why are they so allergenic, if that's even the right way to describe them? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, while anybody, you know, any food can potentially cause a food allergy, there are some foods that are generally very safe. One of the more common misconceptions is a lot of parents think that strawberries are a common cause of allergy, but they're not. I don't know if I've ever diagnosed a legitimate strawberry allergy in 15 years. Uh, they are a common cause of contact rashes, however. Uh, so fruits and vegetables are generally very safe. Uh, same thing with, you know, uh, lean meats and poultries. But we know that there are nine foods that account for more than 90% of all food allergy reactions. And this includes cow's milk or dairy, egg, wheat, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, uh, 
finned fish, such as salmon, tuna, tilapia, and then shellfish, such as uh, shrimp, crab, and lobsters, and then sesame is also on that list as well. So these are the foods that really are the most common causes of food allergy reactions. We don't fully understand why these foods are, some of which, some of them are just, you know, some of the more common foods that we feed infants and young children. Uh, there may be more properties of the of the proteins themselves, such as with peanuts, uh, that, you know, they present themselves to the immune system and the allergy antibodies in a way that, you know, makes them a little more reactive. But there's really no common theme, unfortunately. You know, some people have pointed to the food system in the United States as the problem and that other countries don't have, you know, these food allergies. Is that true? Do we have more here? You know, it's complicated. Yeah, the, the question I get all the time when I talk about the, you know, doubling of prevalence of food allergy over the last couple of decades is what's the reason? Everybody says, I never knew anybody when I was a kid who had right. food allergies. Why do we see food allergies all over the place? Well, there's no easy answer. It, it's a combination of genetic predisposition where um, parents who have uh, allergic uh, history um, are more likely to have children who are programmed to develop this this TH2 type of inflammatory pathway. And then there's, there's very likely some uh, early life exposures that then help turn on or off some of these genes that then cause them to develop allergies. So it, it really is a complicated uh, sort of milieu that goes into it. And there's just no one single piece of it. As far as, you know, whether the Western diet you know, there's a whole bunch of associations, but we don't really have good evidence that says, yes, this is the single cause. And I doubt that we ever will find a single cause. That must be really frustrating to not be able to just nip it in the bud. So it's kind of a mix of both genetic, possibly environmental, possibly. Yeah, it, you know, we say this based upon the hygiene hypothesis, which mm. has been uh, around for decades and has been shown on multiple continents across the world where children who grow up in farming environments uh, are less likely to have allergies in general compared to those who grow up in more urban environments. And it's not just like they grow up on a farm, it's they're exposed to a bunch of different microbes uh, and farm animals, and more importantly, the poop from the farm animals right. and the, you know, <laughs> the microbes that they have. Um, so that's part of the equation. And even if you look at like different Amish populations, uh, it, you can see different prevalence of allergy. Those that are you know definitely on the more traditional side with no electric machines or, or things like that, they even have lower risk of allergy compared to the Amish population that has some machinery and things along those lines. So it is fascinating, but it is just just very complicated. And I like your use of the word frustrating. Here's where it frustrates me is because I see so much paternal guilt, and especially from moms, that you're, you're all searching for that answer of what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. And I try to look every one of them in the eye and say, you didn't do anything wrong. This is not your fault. Even if you wanted to cause your child to develop food allergies, not that you would, you wouldn't be able to do it with any degree of certainty. Um, So that's where it's frustrating because I want to help everybody overcome this guilt that is so natural with this condition. That's a great point. Like we couldn't do it if we tried. So why do we take it on that we can do so much to prevent? I mean, there are means of prevention, which we'll talk about, but there's so much pressure. And I think that doctors and all these resources out there, they aim to ease our anxieties about it. You know, eat this while you're pregnant and do this while you're breastfeeding and don't do this. But I think in the end, it starts to put it more like there's blame on us. So I appreciate you acknowledging that. Um, It's a lot, especially when you get into feeding solids, you're just faced with it and you're crippled by the anxiety (laughs) of feeding your baby something that could, you know, potentially harm them. Yeah, and that's something that we, we address every day uh, in the office, and I do a lot of this on social media as well, just trying to, you know, uh, 
reverse the anxiety that we as a medical establishment have created yeah. uh, over the last decade. We've done a really good job of just scaring the hell out of parents everywhere that they're going to cause some problems with their kids just by feeding them. And it, this has turned into like a medical procedure where how much do I need to give? How often? Right. Uh, and, and what amounts? And it's like, let's just, what are we doing here? Uh, and as the evidence has evolved, and as you mentioned, we'll talk about prevention in a, in a few moments, um, you know, we need to move away from that. And you're not going to hurt your child by, by letting them eat. It's a healthy part of the relationship you have with them and, and that they're going to have with food. Can you can you talk a little bit about that, like how things have changed and really shifted with the timing of introducing allergens? Yeah, uh, so this this stemmed from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is, you know, the, the world's largest organization of pediatricians, and they came out with guidelines, oh my gosh, 20 years ago, and it, at that point, it was basically, uh, let's let's try not to um, cause food, food allergies in children, so let's avoid dairy till one, no eggs till two, no nuts or seafood till three, if you're a mother who's pregnant or breastfeeding, don't eat any of these foods, otherwise you're going to kill your kid, uh, and it was based on expert opinion, and it was, in that was the, the science and the understanding that made sense at the time. Well, just eight years later, which is like light years for, for guidelines to change, the AAP came back and said, well, hold on a second. We actually don't have evidence to support that. And, you know, by the way, you know, you know, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world to feed it. It wasn't an active recommendation to put it in the diet, but it was it was more of an admission of, all right, maybe we don't need to be as stringent as we once thought we needed to be. And then over the last 10 years, this all really started with the, the landmark study, the LEAP trial, where they showed for the first time that if you randomize infants with eczema who are at risk to develop peanut allergy and you take half the group and avoid peanut for five years and the other half you actually give them peanut intentionally prior to a year of age and keep it in the diet the group that ate peanut consistently had a dramatic reduction in peanut allergy by the time they were five so uh, that spearheaded a whole bunch of other studies that have all supported that same evidence and now we have great evidence especially for peanut and egg but for other foods as well that the earlier we introduce it to infants beginning around four to six months of age, but most importantly, and we keep it in the diet consistently, that's our best path to promote tolerance and try to prevent allergy from developing. It must be so exciting that you have all of these decades now of research and we can kind of see what has worked, what hasn't, and it's like leading toward, you know, clearer answers to all of this. That's really, that's really good. Really cool. It's very exciting. And in fact, I'll never forget, I was in the audience at, at our big um, American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology annual meeting in Houston in 2016 when the LEAP trial results were uh, you know, released to the public for the first time. Uh, and, and we're a bunch of nerds because we love the immune system and biochemistry and stuff. But it was like we were at a rock concert. Oh, that's actually, awesome. I, I felt like you know goosebumps on my skin when they talked about this. And we said, oh, my gosh, we've been waiting for this. You know, hallelujah, here we go. And, then, uh, and it was very exciting. So, yeah, for all of us, it is truly exciting. But now what we're learning is exactly what we're seeing with, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic of how do we actually take science and uh, communicate that in a way that people can understand and they can trust? Because now we're reversing what we once said. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's all these different sources of information. How do we get people to understand what's the right information? Oh, Yeah. I can imagine. I I appreciate you geeking out over it because I I'm not even in the remotely near this field. I don't have children who have food allergies, but I think it's so fascinating and I love the advances that we've made. And I know that for so many people it's literally life or death in some cases. So I just think it's awesome. And I can't wait to hear your input on a lot of probably like you said like misconceptions, different 
uh, myths and facts that parents hear. Um, so let's get into time frame. So what's the most common time frame for food allergies to appear in babies and kids, or is there one? Yeah, we, we frequently see uh, the first presentation of food allergy during infancy or when they're toddlers, uh, right when they're starting to expand their diet. So uh, it, it can occur the first time they eat a food. It can occur, you know, several times after. It's very unlikely that somebody's eating something consistently for years, then they develop an allergy. But it can occur. When that happens, it, that's more often going to be a peanuts, tree nuts, or seafood, uh, as opposed to, you know, when we see milk allergy, egg allergy, wheat, soy, that's almost always an in infancy. Um, and, you know, the story, it, it, it's funny because a lot of parents are so nervous about this. They'll drive to the parking lot of an emergency room when they feed their kid something for the first time. I, you know, the, these misconceptions are just, the, and the psychology and the impact they have is profound. I don't get patients because they die the first time they eat peanut. I get patients because parents notice something weird, like their kid gets a rash or they vomit after they eat it. Mm. Uh, and then they say, that's not right. Uh, I don't want to give this again. Let's figure this out. So, you know, it doesn't go from like you're completely fine to you're on death's door as when you develop a food allergy. Uh, the body, you know, sort of presents itself with some, some of the more classic symptoms. And that it can be any combination of red itchy hives on the skin. You can have swelling of the lips or the face. You can have vomiting as well. Sometimes you will have a persistent cough develop. Um, but, you know, as far as severe anaphylaxis with the first food allergy reaction, while it can occur, that's, tip that's not the typical presentation. I think that is the number one myth. I don't even know where we all probably came up with it. <laughs> but, like, I am that mom that was like, should we drive to the ER and just sit there with peanut butter in the back seat and give it to our son? Or, you know, I, I really, what I ended up doing with my first son is I brought it to the pediatrician's office. And I was like, okay, here, we're going to give him peanut butter. And I, my pediatrician was very kind about it. But he was even like, you don't really need to worry this much. But we all think that those reactions, or most of us think that those reactions are going to be like the worst case scenario the first time. So that's that's rare or impossible pretty much. Well, not impossible. We, but we certainly do yeah. see it on occasion. But yeah. yeah, you know, but my frame of reference is very different as well, because this is all I do. So all day, every day, we're yeah. just seeing children. So with children with food allergies. So we are really picking out all of the nuances and the unusual presentations. But if you look at, you know, we think about the human condition, what it, what it means to be a human. There's a bell-shaped curve to what we all experience. Most people are going to fall in that middle group of that bell-shaped curve, and then we have outliers. Mm. Uh, so if we treat every child as if they're an outlier, that's a huge disservice to the vast majority of people who fall in that middle of the bell shape. So yeah. if we're treating every child like they are the one that's going to have extremely rare, severe anaphylaxis the first time they eat a food, um, that's really causing a lot of anxiety and unnecessary uh, fear. I can't even imagine because we once we got over the peanut butter hump, we were okay. But I can yeah. only imagine if we had food, food allergies in our family and scary traumatic experiences. I, I can I can imagine that that can get out of hand. Um, so, what are the current guidelines regarding you know starting solids, what age, and when to introduce allergens? I hope all of your listeners feel very comfortable with the fact that, um, you know, your child is your child. They're an individual. They are not 
anything like what you read about on Instagram or what your friends tell you or neighbors tell you, each child is on their own path. And I say this because if you look at like developmental milestones, and when I had to memorize this, I had I had such a hard time as when I was learning how to be a pediatrician, because there's a huge range, like there's a range of months mm. when, when kids are ready to roll over or walk or talk or say their first words. And again, it goes back to that bell-shaped curve. If you're comparing your normal child who's not ready to do this just yet to somebody else who was a little more advanced when it comes to that, um, you know, you're going to start to think what's wrong with my kid and there's nothing wrong with them at all. So this is all to say that we generally recommend starting solids around four to six months of age, but you know, they need to show interest in doing it because they, they need to learn these important skills of chewing and swallowing. So generally, you know, when they start to show interest as, as you're eating meals or around that age, offer them small amounts of the typical things like purees or rice cereal or oatmeal on a spoon and see how they do with it. Most infants are going to, you know, spit it out or protrude their tongue and resist it at first. And then you try again over time. And we don't want to force it on them, but we want to also let them practice and get used to it. So around four to six months of age, start with the typical solids. And then once they show that interest and ability to chew and swallow, then, yeah, go for it. You know, we want to introduce all of these different allergenic foods into the diet and keep them there consistently. There's formulas you can find online to use peanut butter thinned with water or peanut powder, these bomba snacks. You know, you can give yogurt in forms of dairy. Same thing with different uh, types of egg and things like that. So we, we definitely don't want to avoid these things. We want to... Uh, uh, if anything, go out of a way to introduce them and make it a part of the diet. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that lately I've been seeing more of the push for looking at if your child is developmentally ready rather than this age uh, guideline, which is yeah, helpful. Yeah, I think that's wise. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there's a huge range. And I see this in older children as well. Of, you know, people just have different skills at different times. And. I have some friends who were breastfeeding and they started noticing that maybe their kids are having some symptoms. I don't know if it started off the bat with just breastfeeding or when they started introducing solids. Is there, when, if you're a breastfeeding mom, is there, are there things that you need to cut out of your diet if you start to see your baby react? Is, the, is can it be passed through? You know, what I'm going to say is going to be um, contradictory to a lot of the information that your listeners have been told or what they'll find online, but I would say it is the exception and not the rule that any mother needs to stop eating a food in their diet based upon anything happening in their baby. Wow. Uh, and there's, there's a few reasons why. One is because by the time they eat it, and then their own digestive system breaks it down. And those those parts get absorbed into their body. And what ends up in the breast milk are nutrients. Uh, it's not like you have intact food proteins from whatever they ate being passed on to their baby. Um, so for the vast majority, and there are occasions where, where mothers do need to remove food from their diet, but they need to sort of prove that uh, because no matter what they've done for their child, nothing is sort of making them better. The more common instance is their child develops any number of symptoms that are just unrelated to food allergy in the first place or foods, or they have chronic, common chronic conditions like eczema or other rashes, mm. and then it's a misconception that food actually causes those. For the vast majority of these instances, it's more correlation and not causation. Uh, and we, we have too many mothers out there that have eliminated multiple foods from their own diet thinking that they're harming their child, and their child continues to have symptoms, so they keep going down the rabbit hole of taking more and more food out when it, was not, it had nothing to do with food in the first place. Wow. So our doctors sort of coming around to understanding that or is this something you're working to sort of disprove 
Uh, slowly, we're seeing more and more in the literature about how we need to take a, a more thoughtful approach to recommendations for maternal diets while breastfeeding. Yeah. Uh, there's a really interesting review in the British Medical Journal uh, just two years ago. They looked at the um, the last 10 years of cow's milk allergy guidelines, and they found significant conflicts of interest among uh, oh. formula manufacturers, oh, actually, no. you know, promoting these guidelines and shifting people more towards hypoallergenic formulas, uh, like vague references as to what constitutes a milk allergy, like symptoms like colic, which is not due to food allergy um so there's a lot of this that we need to undo as well it's sort of a it's a it's a messy part of uh of what we've done over the last 20 years yeah i mean it's shocking it's shocking to hear this especially because most moms that i know i really think it's most moms that i know have have cut things out of their diets because they think that it's upsetting their babies and you know i i we went through so many formulas with my son and and so many issues with all of that so i i it is shocking to hear this but i it's i believe it that there it's not that black and white so that's really interesting um let's talk about really quickly I have read that like a large number i don't want to i'd have thought it would, i've read like 50% or even 80% but food allergies developing in adulthood are more common than happening in childhood. Oh no, that's that's actually the reverse. Okay. Uh, so yeah, adults can develop food allergy, but it is much more rare than what we see in children. Okay, and we don't good. fully understand why. Yeah, typically it is going to be more peanuts, tree nuts, or, or seafood uh, with adult onset food allergies. But more often than not, there's uh, just misdiagnosis and overdiagnosis of what people think may be food allergy that's actually unrelated to that uh, mm. whatsoever for, for other symptoms. Okay, that's interesting because I would think from what I know, it's mostly kids that I know, um, but I didn't know if all of what we're talking about today should apply to adults too, like eating foods frequently. I mean, maybe that still has um, an effect, but when can we actually let our guard down a little bit about allergies? Like, is there a certain age where in a child or even a teenager or adult that you would typically have an idea if they're, if they have a food allergy or not? Yeah, you know, I actually think of it in reverse. So if we know that food allergies affect about 5 to maybe 8% of all people, and they are much more common in children, that means that 92 to 95% of the population will never develop a food allergy no matter what they do. Mm. Um, so I, I think of it that way. Of just, I would tell everybody, don't even worry about this. Don't yeah. even let this enter your mind unless you have certain risk factors. So one, do you have symptoms that are consistent with food allergy that we talked about before? Or two, are you a highly allergic person? Meaning that, you know, infants that have truly persistent eczema, not just those little stubborn spots that go away with some cortisone, like they have a large part of their body covered in eczema or it's really persistent despite doing all kinds of different techniques and medications to make it better. Those are the infants at highest risk to develop food allergy in the first place. Um, But if you have a baby that's been eating foods and they're doing fine with it, I don't want parents thinking that they're a ticking time bomb ready to go off at any point. Yeah. Uh, I think we want to give that reassurance. Totally. That makes me feel better. I, I, that's kind of how I've I've been lately. But I think the first couple months of feeding, until you've exposed almost every food, I think you feel a little bit on edge. Um, so talk a little bit about eczema because this really interests me, um, the role of eczema and food allergies. You know, eczema is not an allergy. Eczema is a chronic skin condition that we know that, you know, a significant portion have mutations in their structural proteins in their skin. And what it leads to is it leads to excessive loss of moisture. So the skin gets really dry and then it gets irritated and it gets, they scratch and it gets red and then, you know, uh, irritants and other things can impact it. But eczema is often one of the first indicators that that 
child will go on to develop other allergies. So eczema is not caused by allergy, but eczema is the first outward sign that, yes, this is the person who's more likely to develop uh, either food or environmental allergies or asthma as they get older. Um, in regards to foods and eczema, it's a complicated relationship. Uh, you know, our, our food allergy testing is really only indicated to use for those people who have immediate onset allergic reactions, meaning I eat the food and within a few minutes, rather longer than an hour or two later, big red itchy hives, swelling, vomiting, anaphylaxis. Uh, this is caused by the IgE antibody, which we look for in the skin testing and blood testing. Um, so these, th this is rarely, if ever, indicated in the role of eczema, because eczema, you know, you're going to know that. That's a different story in that baby. And there's a lot of misconceptions that foods, you know, cause eczema. But the overuse of, of food allergy testing in eczema causes a huge problem because we get tons of false positive results. Ugh. And then what happens is our parents are told to take food out of their baby's diet. It has nothing to do with their eczema in the first place. Uh, there's often correlations. So they, they remove the food and they feel that their eczema gets better because of X, Y, and Z reasons. And they think that it's because of the food but it wasn't. And we now know that this actually can cause real harm because if babies are producing IgE, but they're eating it without problems, that means they're sensitized but tolerant. If you tell that person to take food out of their diet and they avoid it for a period of time, then they go to eat again. That's how you cause an allergy to develop. Oh so this overuse of IgE testing in infants with eczema is a major, major problem. So what should parents do in those situations? I think a lot of uh, parents I, kn I know of babies and kids that have food allergies, that's kind of the route that they're taking. Just second opinions at that point? Yeah, if they can. I, I think this is a, a place where we're really trying to undo a lot of the, the prior you know information that's circulated. And this is where evidence evolves and our understanding yeah. has evolved. So instead of you know going to see an allergist or pediatrician saying, I want you to tell me the cause of my child's eczema, I know the cause of your eczema. It's their skin. Mm. Uh, there's no single cause. This isn't like if you stop eating banana, your eczema goes away or anything like that. Um, and I know many of your listeners are going to say, this guy's a fool because I did take <laughs> food out of my diet and their eczema did improve. And I believe you and I hear you, but that's still not the root cause of what's going on. Um, so we need to just change our education and, and, and information that we're giving to parents. And a lot of this falls on pediatricians as well. Wow. that That's crazy. This is probably the most like mind-blowing part of it. Um, okay. I don't know. I'm sure you're familiar with this and I could have this all wrong, but a couple of years ago, I heard about this study and they took mice and they, and they were looking at like the link of eczema and food allergies and they took mice and they made like a little abrasion on the skin and then they rubbed peanut butter into it and then the mice developed peanut allergies and they were they thought this was like a breakthrough saying like okay so now we know kids who have eczema it must be that they're getting allergens uh their first exposure of allergens through their skin instead of orally is do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, you're right. So this, this really gets to the concept of how our immune system differs based upon the location in the body. Uh, so we have our immune system, you know, we have different cells in the skin, we have different cells in the gut. So if you expose through the skin, especially with eczema, um, that's a way that some people can get sensitized. Mm -hmm. But if you expose through the gut, that's the best way to promote tolerance. So this is another reason why we, we're strongly recommending that we actually let kids eat this food uh, and keep in their diet. That's the best way to promote tolerance. It's another reason why we definitely don't want anybody rubbing food on their kid's skin before <laughs> giving it them, you know, to them to eat because, yeah. you know, one, it's not going to do anything. Two, uh, if they get a nonspecific rash, it's just going to cause even more confusion than anything. So just we just need to let our babies eat. Yeah. It has to be so stressful when you get, you know, a recommendation from a doctor to cut out a food and you start to see an improvement and then to hear, oh, maybe that's not the cause. It must be really scary. So I, I sympathize if anyone's listening and they're losing their mind right now. <laughs> um, 
Wow, that's a lot. Yes. But that makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, um, even if we do consider food elimination, and, you know, when I tell people to avoid foods, I have to give them a really good reason. And typically it's because, hey, listen, uh, I have a history of when I eat this food, I got hives and swelling and allergic reactions, and I have allergy testing that confirms that suspicion. So I would assume that if you were to eat enough of it, it may cause a more severe reaction. That's a pretty good reason to avoid that food. But even then, uh, strict avoidance, you know, we this culture of fear is food allergies for decades, uh, we now understand enough about food allergies that it's not one size fits all. Uh, And strict avoidance of, you know, making sure that there's not even a minute portion on anything that you eat, uh, that is overkill for the vast majority of people with food allergies. So Mm. we even have wiggle room. And if you're worried about a food causing problems, we don't need to remove it for the rest of your life unless you have a, you know, even if you have a diagnosis of food allergy that can change as you get older. So for mothers out there that are, are taking food out of their diet, you know, let's be very careful observance of let's take it out of your diet, um, observe for, you know, no more than two weeks. Did you see a complete resolution of your child's problems? If it didn't completely resolve, then it had nothing to do with what you're eating. And then Mm. you can eat the food again. But oftentimes what happens is they take the food out of their diet. Well, they kind of got better, but then they got worse again. Maybe there's something else that I'm eating. So then they take more food out of their diet and they, they go on like that for weeks and months. Whereas it should be take a food out, no improvement or no obvious significant improvement, start eating that food again because it wasn't that food. Right. And of course I should, you know, there should be a disclaimer, you know, talk to your doctor. Yeah, <laughs> um, please. But yeah, th- that is absolutely the route that I see a lot of uh, people go. And it makes sense. I see what, and you're so tired and so scared. So I, I really understand, but it's really unfortunate that they're, that we're sort of driving um, with fear. Uh, that's tough. I, I understand like with babies, everything's scary, but this, this is a really, this is a sticky one. So, um, you also mentioned asthma. Is there a link with asthma the way, um, there is with eczema? Yeah, it's the same sort of thing where oftentimes it, you know, this allergic predisposition. So you're born with a genetic, you know, makeup that says you're more likely to develop allergies and these different inflammatory, you know, parts of the immune system that, you know, predispose you to get allergies. Uh, starts with eczema during early infancy, but a- asthma doesn't really develop for quite some time. It can develop in infancy, but typically we see it occur more towards when kids are toddlers because they need to have time to really establish a recurrent pattern of persistent cough or wheeze um, that occurs after exposure to any multiple number of triggers, such as weather changes, viral or respiratory infections, exposure to you know environmental irritants, things like that. So they just have to be a certain age before they've had that pattern of symptoms before we can diagnose it. Mm. No, that makes sense. Um what are your thoughts? I know you said that you really can't prevent, but I don't know if I'm sure you're familiar with uh, a product like Spoonful One, I think it's called, where it's like a powder of every allergen and you it's ground up so you could just toss it in your baby's food and expose them every day. Is this like the future of allergy prevention? Is this overkill? What do you think about that stuff? Yeah, you know, there's multiple products out there that have um, developed based upon the evidence that has accumulated. The earlier we get these foods in the diet and keep them in the diet, that's the best path towards preventing food allergy in the first place. Um, none of these sp- individual products have ever been studied in a um, in a sound methodological way that shows that they that these products themselves do prevent food allergy. There's much to be learned about how much needs to be given, how often. Um, so, you know, the other thing we have to consider too is we never want to use these in place of real food. We want to let babies 
babies eat foods to get the nutrients they need to learn how to like different tastes and textures and, and, a, and a wide variety of foods in their diet. So these by themselves really shouldn't be used. Um, if some families do want to pay for them, uh, they are rather expensive and not all families can afford them, then they may wish to buy them just to make it a little bit easier to try to mix this into their child's diet on a consistent basis. Um, but I certainly would never recommend it in replacement of, of just letting them eat. So when you when we talk about like, um, you know, exposing them early and often frequently frequent exposure, what what I mean, I, I can tell you don't really like to put a hard numbers on things like that. But what is frequent? So for the engineers out there that need me to give them a specific <laughs> recipe, and I get it, there are some people that just tell me how much it went. Yeah. So if, if we base it on this LEAP study, and this LEAP study, they had to, they came up with a protocol just like anybody else. So this is all made up out of thin air. They gave two grams of peanuts three times a week. Um, now, I don't want people necessarily measuring this out, giving it that specific yeah. times, but I think the point is, like, make it part of your diet. If your family doesn't eat seafood, um, don't go out of your way to buy a bunch of fish and feed it to your baby hoping to prevent seafood allergy if they're never going to eat it anyways. Yeah. Just let your kids eat variations of what you eat as long as it's age-appropriate and not a choking hazard. That's, that's very helpful. I think that we all want those numbers. So that that's a good <laughs> I can make them up for you if you want. <laughs> no, it's I get it like this is this is exactly the answer is kind of in the question. <laughs> like yeah. there's there's no real it's just often and what works with your with your life, I guess. Um well, it's funny before we go. So I, I say this to families all the time and I, I try to reassure them. I'm like, look, it's really hard to, to mess this up. Just, you know, make it make it a consistent part of the diet. The, the thing that worries me is if you leave this visit today and you go home and you're afraid to feed them and you don't give it to them for the next six months, I would like for you to call me. Mm. And in fact, we actually now contact those families afterwards and we see how's it going, any concerns, things like that. Those are the ones that worry me more than anything else. And for some of them, I say, if you want me to prescribe, you know, an amount or a frequency, I'm telling you up front, I'm just making it all up and I'm happy. <laughs> to do that and i kind of chuckle but they look at me dead serious and say yes can you do that for me and i say sure yeah honestly <laughs> yeah it's fine i can understand that i think that people just feel better when they have that to fall back on but it's, you can only laugh at it i guess if you don't laugh i mean <laughs> you're gonna just well yeah but, but for others it stresses them out because like oh yeah. my gosh i missed the dose on wednesday what do i do right. it's okay take a deep breath right okay, whatever you want <laughs> it's such a reassurance when i find out that things aren't that black and white as much as i feel like i want the structure and, and the all the information when i when i get that pass of like it's okay. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, I could breathe about this a little bit. It's not going to kill my kid. Oh my God. Okay. So if I, if I may, you know, for you and for your wonderful listeners and anybody who's taking the time to be thoughtful about their approach to parenting and being proactive to try their best to do the right thing, I promise each and every one of you, you're not messing this up. You're doing great. You're doing so great. I don't worry about your kids. I worry about you. Yeah. Mental well-being. Um, right. Like, really, it, it, I have the benefit of working with families from all kinds of different backgrounds. So in this in this sort of realm of, of the Internet and podcasting and social media, you are sort of a select group of, of individuals that are highly motivated, trying to do the best. I, I see other aspects of society that don't have these resources. They don't have the time. Um, and their kids do just fine as well. So yeah. I just want to reassure all of you as much as I can. That's really awesome. I appreciate that. I'm sure a lot of people appreciate that. I think we all need a little pass when when it's deserved, you know? <laughs> like this yeah. isn't this isn't where we need to worry. 
Yeah. No, and in fact, for those of you who are raising young children in the midst of a global pandemic, yeah. we all need a hall pass. What we are going through as a society and as parents and as humans and as individuals is unprecedented and the most stressful thing any of us are ever going to collectively go through in our lives. Mm -hmm. So that's only exacerbating all of the anxieties that all of us already have. Um, we have to acknowledge that, and it's it, what we're going through is not okay yeah. uh, as a society. This is not normal. Um, so it's okay to take breaks. It's okay to take a deep breath. It's okay to go in the corner and cry when you need to cry. Uh, we have to have those outlets. Yeah. And I think we're at the point now where we're going on the third year of it, that it's like, oh, we forget that this is not normal life. And I think that our baseline is now just anxious. Mm -hmm. And that's really good advice. This is not normal. It's helpful to just keep reminding ourselves of that. Yeah. As much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about testing and diagnosis. What is the process? So the best test is the history. So I will spend uh, a significant portion of time going through what seems like minute details to try to figure out what did you eat? What was included there? What's the most likely cause? Because sometimes parents come in thinking it's one thing, but it's actually another thing. Uh, how long did it take before symptoms developed? So if symptoms occurred, you know, the next day, I'm not worried about food allergy. It's, it's typically going to be within an hour or two. So what was the timing? What was the food? What were the symptoms? That's the most important test to figure out, is this likely a food allergy? Um, and then if that's you know suspicious for food allergy we have skin prick testing where we put drops of liquid allergen on the skin of the back of the forearm we gently scratch through it to introduce it to those allergy cells right there in the top part of the skin we wait 15 minutes if that person has ige allergy antibody it unlocks those allergy cells releasing histamine which causes a hive the size of that hive indicates the likelihood of allergy being present we have blood testing where we can measure levels of that IgE, uh, and higher the level uh, indicates the more likely allergy is present. Neither skin tests or blood tests indicate severity. There's too many people that are mis that are unfortunately told, oh my gosh, you have a severe allergy based upon this test result. Mm -hmm. You cannot determine that based upon the test result. And in addition, these tests are not screening tests. You can't just put a bunch of tests out there and see what happens. So all these you know, tests that are marketed for at-home use are really causing a huge disservice because there are very high rates of false positives positive results for many reasons. So um, we have to use expertise in understanding when to use the tests and how to interpret them. It's not a yes, no answer that says you definitely have allergy. Uh, and that's how we get to the diagnosis of food allergy. We opened our new center, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 11 months ago. And when looking at the over 1,000 new patient consultations we've done so far, and more than half of them, we undiagnosed suspected food allergy at the first visit. Wow. So there's a lot of people out there that think that a child has a food allergy, and we actually determine that it has nothing to do with food allergy at all, but it's either you know eczema or chronic you know, sensitive skin and uh, non-allergic irritant rashes or other reasons for digestive issues or so on and so forth. Oh my God. That's so unfortunate that they've spent however long freaking out about things, cutting foods out, being so careful. Wow. That's... Yeah, but that's why we're here. And we yeah. love reassuring families. And, and we tell, I, when I meet with pediatricians, I say, listen, you have a very busy day. You're seeing 40 patients. You have all these concerns. If, if you get into these conversations, which can be quite lengthy, and you don't have the time or, or ability to, to really address them, just send them to us because we can spend 30, 45, sometimes 60 minutes with right. families just going through all this and reassuring them and coming up with a plan. Yeah, I think the, your best bet is always seeing a specialist and just somebody that you re who really, this is your whole life, you know? Wow, that is really crazy. Yeah, there's I have uh, there's a lot of 
uh, nicknames for me at work. But, you know, there's the, oftentimes our nurses will come out of a room and they'll say, "Oh, we got a Stuka special for you." And what they mean by that is, um, it's a it's a, a beautiful young child with very sensitive skin, chronic rashes. The parents feel that they have 20 different food allergies, which they typically don't have, but then they also have one or two legitimate food allergies and we have to spend time sorting out what's the real food allergy versus what's the non-specific you know irritation how do we navigate through that what do we need to avoid how can we get the rest in the diet how can we instill confidence moving forward with that family and that's really what we specialize in wow you're like a detective at that point that's oh, wild. I, I love it. Yes, that's all I do. I, that's my job. <laughs> ah, that is really cool. That must be really exciting when you give a family an answer and it actually works. <laughs> and it's not as scary, I guess, as with the life that they were living before. Yes, that, that's our whole goal here. And, uh, you know, I had this conversation this morning with a couple of families of, you know, they come in and they're, they have significant anxiety surrounding the child's food allergy. They were overdiagnosed with a bunch of testing that wasn't necessary. And they're putting their child in a bubble. And, and I kind of smile. They can't see it now because I'm wearing a mask, of course. Yeah. But I say, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I promise you, you're not alone in this. We are going to find a path forward. And this mm-hmm. is the life that I think you can have after this. I might not be able to remove all of these food allergies, but we can definitely open things up. And I don't think it's as dire as you think it is and let me help you with that so it's wonderful that is so awesome that must feel really good i love it so what are some of the current food allergy treatments available and some in the pipeline yeah this is very exciting um you know we have uh different ways of sort of retraining the immune system we've used immunotherapy for over 100 years for environmental allergies this is traditionally allergy shots uh, where we basically take what you're allergic to we dilute it down to a very small amount and then we inject it back into the body and then we expose it over time with increasing amounts so your body becomes desensitized to it well the same principles apply with food allergy so we can give very very small amounts this should never be done at home this always has to be done under very strict supervision because what happens if you take somebody who has a food allergy especially severe food allergy and you give them what they're allergic to every day, well, you increase the risk of having allergic reactions. Mm. So we need to really you know, do this in a supervised way, starting with very small amounts, and then you build it up over time, and then they eat that same amount on a consistent basis. This has to be done every single day. Now, what all the research has shown with oral immunotherapy, which is what I'm describing, is that most people can be desensitized, meaning as long as they're exposed every day, they raise the amount they would need to eat to cause a severe allergic reaction compared to where they were before starting the therapy. This doesn't necessarily mean that they can eat as much as they want. They still need to have their epinephrine available. They're not cured of their allergy. After that, there's a subset that can go on after years of of taking this therapy to then stop eating it, and then they can go a period of time and eat it again without having a reaction. Uh, That is not the expected outcome for the vast majority of people undergoing oral immunotherapy, uh, but that can occur in some people. There's cool new research coming out showing that potentially if we start this early on, we might be able to, you know, raise the amount that would then go on to develop sustained unresponsiveness or potentially cure it, but it's still in the, in the early stages. And then people really need to understand the risks associated with this, including allergic reactions or anaphylaxis, and then just the daily management, because we can't have people exercise for about two hours uh, mm. surrounding each dose every day. Uh, we need to dose adjust based upon acute illness, so if they're taking 
you know, certain types of medications and things like that. So it's a really a highly nuanced and supervised process. But for some families, this is the greatest thing ever because they know that their child is sort of, you know, uh, protected against an accidental bite of something and won't cause severe reactions or anaphylaxis. But I'd also say a lot of these children are already protected at baseline. And if you look at the amount of food protein that is needed to cause an allergic reaction, not necessarily anaphylaxis, but any allergic reaction in 50% of the population that has a food allergy, like 50% of people with peanut allergy need to eat about three quarters of a peanut to have any reaction at all. Uh, but there's many people out there thinking that if they, you know, are exposed to invisible amounts or trace amounts, it's, it's going to send them to the hospital. So we need to start with that and make sure wow. people have a good understanding of what's their threshold, what's their what's their individual risk, what's their individual severity. So there's a lot that goes into it, but that's sort of where we are with oral immunotherapy. And we can talk about some of the other cool research uh, aspects if you'd like as well. Yeah, please. Okay, so uh, we know that, you know, giving food by mouth and eating it can uh, desensitize most people as long as you're exposed to it. Uh, There's research showing that we can achieve similar results by putting it under the tongue and letting it absorb through the mouth while also decreasing risk for side effects. And then there's uh, good research that shows if we put it on the skin with the peanut patch that we can achieve similar results as well by even further lowering the risk of side effects. That is not FDA approved or available just yet, but we're very hopeful that that's going to be available in the next year or two. And then there's the use of biologic medications. So we've used these for 15 years for people with severe asthma, where we can give them an injection of a medicine that blocks the IgE antibody. And it works really, really well for the right patient. Same thing with those with chronic hives. Uh, Well, there's early research that shows if we can block that allergic pathway, that we can protect them from having allergic reactions if they accidentally eat it. The problem is biologics are given by injection right now every two to four weeks, and it's about $1,000 in injection. So uh, even though they may work really, really well, it may not be convenient for everybody, and it may, uh, it's unlikely it's going to be covered by insurance when they can just say, you know, avoid the food and you'll do okay. Wow. That is awesome, though. There are so, I had no idea there were so many different, you know, things that they're working on, like so many different types of things. So you said like a peanut patch and, and like, is it like a vaccine or is it just like, um, like a shot, like. So- yeah. yeah, none of these that I've described are vaccines. The, these biologic injections are actually um, monoclonal antibodies, kind of oh, like what we use yeah. for the treatment of COVID. Yeah. Um, and they, they just block specific parts of the immune system. So you have to continue to receive them on an ongoing basis Got for it. them to work. They don't cure you. Uh, there was actually a new investigator uh, protocol that was approved by the FDA to look at a vaccine for peanut allergy, but that's a very early stage. Right. So we're going to be you know, years away from even seeing those results. That is so cool. I love all of this. I wish I had like your type of brain, that science type of brain <laughs> to really understand all of it, but I think it's so cool. It's so, it must be so exciting to, to be, you know, working in the field as it's all changing. Oh, it, it's fascinating. And I, I'm in a position now, which I love, is I kind of grow in my career and I'm involved in our professional organizations where now like we're doing some of these research trials at our center and I get to work with some of these companies and, and better understand you know, the thought process behind the development and how they're studying it. And also, more importantly, look at you know what do, what do they actually find in regards to safety and efficacy and then what are the limitations because we need to be really thoughtful about how we use any of these things. Yeah. Wow. I think this is so cool. This is like on a whole different direction than I thought. I never knew that there was so much happening, especially in terms of uh, not not a cure, but I guess I guess it's just a treatment. Uh, You consider like the the immunology is that more of like a treatment like for the rest of their lives. 
Well, yeah, the oral immunotherapy, right now, it's definitely years-long therapy. We don't know um, how long some people need to be treated for. Can you start right. to kind of space things out a little bit? There's there's more to be to learned uh, uh, with those aspects of it. But what, you know, what I can say confidently is anybody out there who, you know, whatever you learned about food allergy, whether it was years ago or whether you were evaluated years ago or your child, things have changed. And yeah. I actually put a, a new presentation together for our, our fellows in training recently, and the title was Conversations I Have That I Didn't Have Five Years years ago and i i had it was like a 90 minute presentation of just these are all the things i do differently now that i didn't do five years ago it, it has changed so much so um if, if you're not receiving the most current up-to-date information it's really a disservice because it really is an individualized approach and we are way beyond strict avoidance and if you touch any of it you're gonna die that is that's that's like old school and it's, it's really a disservice totally no that that's i I hear you. <laughs> I want to send this to like five of my adult friends <laughs> to listen to because I feel like, you know, if you're you're not a kid, you're not thinking about it as much. You just avoid, avoid. But there could be treatments out there. That's very exciting. So do you, do you personally think that food allergies will ever be a thing of the past? I would love that. I don't want to have a job. Um, <laughs> I, I think that would be amazing, um, but it's unlikely. Uh, yeah. You know, it's once we start thinking about true cures, as I mentioned before, there's no single cause of food allergy, so we're never going to find one thing that cures it or, or treats everybody. Um, but I think we're making progress, and I think it, it's absolutely manageable. And, you know, one thing very few people talk about, but I think it really is important are the positive aspects of having food allergy. I would never wish food allergy upon anybody, but I can tell you that there are many families out there that really have found a positive path. And we know children who grow up with food allergies are, are more self-sufficient. They're better at self-management. They're better at communication and they're more confident overall. And families learn how to uh, bake and cook uh, using foods that don't have the ingredients that their child is allergic to. So they generally eat healthier. So we need to acknowledge those aspects as well. I agree. And I, and I know that, parents of kids with food allergies talk about, or actually even parents who have food allergies and their kids don't, they say, my kid is so compassionate. Uh, my kid really looks out for their friends who have food allergies because they know they're so used to caring for me and being, you know, it's part of their life, which I think is really a nice upside, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I could talk to you for three more hours, but... <laughs> We have to wrap up at some point. Um, so can you share your best piece of solicited parenting advice? Take a deep breath. It's going to be okay. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. It's simple. Yeah, no, and in all honesty, when because there are many children out there that do have medical problems that need to be addressed and properly diagnosed. So I would say um, make sure that you're you're getting good communication from your pediatrician or specialist. Uh, that's a, a common thing I hear from families. They, they say we were thrown this diagnosis of food allergy at us and they didn't give us any education or information. Yeah. That's not okay. Yeah. Uh, that is, that is, that's causing real harm. So don't settle for that. You can always get a second opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. I know it's not convenient. Nobody wants to do that. But yeah. unfortunately, not everybody in medicine is, uh, is as well-versed with the current evidence and not everybody in medicine is as well-versed with the importance of communication and taking time to answer questions. So you deserve that for you and your child. I love that. I think that's been the most helpful part of just this episode is just hearing that maybe the advice that you're getting, if you're not seeing the right results and you don't feel right about it, get a second opinion. That's, that's really, really helpful. Honestly, I kind of, I know, thankfully I don't have kids with food allergies, but I do wish I had a crash course in all of this when I was pregnant 
Because I think it would have eliminated so many fears that I had that I don't think I really needed to freak out about as much. Um, So I can't thank you enough. Seriously, this was really eye-opening. And I hope that I know that this is going to help so many people. So thank you so much again for coming on. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, as I said a couple of times, I realized that the information I provide may be contradictory to what you've heard before or read before. Please uh, you know, navigate the internet with caution, uh, especially in social media circles, because there's a lot of anecdotes out there that don't apply to your, your story whatsoever. Uh, and hopefully your own doctor, had, you have a trusted relationship with them. But thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And can before you go, plug your social media, because I really like your Instagram page and any other resources you, you think would be helpful. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I am, I can be found at Allergy Kids Doc on Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, and I try to be as active as I can. Things get a little busy sometimes, but you'll see some, some pretty consistent posts about uh, all things related to allergy and then uh, also lots of common questions about the, the pandemic and things like that. So thank Amazing. You. Thank you so much. So go give him a follow. He shares really helpful information on his Instagram page and, and now Twitter. I have to follow you. And be sure to follow Not Like a Regular Mom podcast on Instagram. Shoot me an email at notlikearegularmompodcast at gmail.com with any questions or feedback. And Dr. Stukas, thank you so much again.